Hello, and welcome to Slush, a publishing podcast. I'm your host, Eric Harden, and on this week's episode, we'll be chatting with a former colleague of mine all about working in a publisher's sales department. This week's guest is Bianca Johnson. She is currently the National Account Sales Manager of Special Markets for Little Bee Books, but previously she worked with me at Macmillan, and she is just a really great person, very fun to chat with. We had a really great interview. Of course, we talked about all things sales as per usual, but we also had a really in-depth and I think great conversation about TV's hottest new show about the publishing industry. I don't, I mean, I have no connection to TV agents or whoever makes TV shows happen. I'm also very (laughs) oblivious to that world, but someone needs to get on this because I do think there's rich material to work with in publishing. But yeah, we had a really great conversation all about working in sales, the difference between regular sales work and special sales work, which is what Bianca has focused on for most of her career. And I'm excited for you all to hear it. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Bianca Johnson. Thank you so much, Bianca, for taking the time to chat with me about working in the sales department. Not a problem. Glad to be here. And thank you for asking me. Oh my gosh, of course. So let's jump right into this. The first question I have for you is, how did you get to this point in your career? Basically, give us a full rundown of your resume. So I actually didn't know publishing could be a job until I was senior in college. I was actually an education major, studying to be an English teacher. And my Shakespeare professor was like, oh, why don't you just do publishing? I was like, that's a thing. They didn't know. But also with publishing comes internships, which I did not have any of at the time because I did not know it was a thing. So I actually started out in fashion. I worked at Jones, New York for about a year and a half as an office manager. I can honestly say devil wears products pretty on point in that industry. So I was ready to get out as soon as I got in. But with publishing, as you know, it's who you know. It's the internships. I can tell you, I went on maybe 20 to 30 interviews, got rejected from book publishing to magazines. There was one instance where I interviewed for Maxim magazine and the person who interviewed me fell asleep. So that was that was quite interesting. So it was just rejection after rejection. I applied to every major house about four or five times and the HR rep at Hachette took pity on me. And so our position for sales assistants, like, oh, I think it'd be great for it. Forget the pre-interview. Let's just go on in. So I went in, interviewed with Cynthia Polisco. She's now at Simon & Schuster. And I thought the interview went really well until she said, sell me a chair. And I said, what? She's like, this chair right here. Sell me the chair. Sell me this chair as if your job depended on it. And I sold the hell out of the chair, got the job, which is great. But the day I started is the day she quit. She gave her notice that day. And when I started in publishing, I didn't know ISBN. I didn't know the difference between formats. I knew nothing about the publishing world. So it was a learning curve. She left me her username and password and said, Godspeed and good luck. And that was it. So I received a crash course, but it worked because four months later, I got promoted to what her job was. And I stayed at Hachette for about five and a half years. And worked entirely in special sales. So I did wholesale, online, catalogs. And it's very rare for anyone to stay in special sales. Just because a lot of people want to work with national accounts like Barnes & Noble and back then Borders. So I was very much a rarity. But after five and a half years, as you know, in order to move up, you got to move on. So I moved on to Simon & Schuster, where I stayed for about two and a half years. And I did custom publishing, which... Again, knew nothing about. I just knew I was creating content 
or taking existing books and completely manipulating it. So I worked with Costco, BJ's, Sam's Club, Target, all the big box companies. But what people don't realize is that it's truly a labor of love because it takes about six months to a year to see the finished product from pricing to pricing it out in China, receiving dummies. So it was an experience because I learned, you know, the price of paper, which is actually very, very inexpensive. I learned about fancy borders, embossing, spot gloss, matte. I learned the ins and outs of what it takes to create a book, which I truly appreciate it because my time has shed. The book was already done. All I do is just sell a completed book. So seeing what goes on behind the scenes was really, really eye-opening. And while I was at Simon, my boss, who was actually six years younger than me, which some people may find a little bit issue with, but... She had the experience and she's actually still one of my closest friends to this day, actually, after she left publishing. But she taught me a lot. And when she left, I took over for her position and stayed. Wasn't really looking for another job. And then good old LinkedIn came in and Perseus reached out. At the time, Perseus was one of the number one publishing distributors at the time. And they were looking for a sales rep. And at that time, I was looking for something different. Granted, I did love custom publishing, but like I said, it was a labor of love. And a lot of it is getting approvals and, you know, going through a process. And during that time, if a certain rep didn't like what you were pitching, the project was dead before you even got to present it. So it was more rejection, but it just made the payoff that much better. So I interviewed with Perseus, got the job at the time. It was only 200 publishers. So I was pretty much doing what I was doing at Hachette, just with independent publishers, except the interesting part was my boss was not based in New York. She was based in Philadelphia. So I had to travel to Philadelphia three days a week and then two days in New York. So when I mean I did not know which way was up, it was an understatement. So I either took the train or drove for about four or five months and then Ingram purchased us. Which, of course, is scary when anyone acquires another publishing company. But we went from 200 publishers to 700. So I was responsible for selling all of these books from 700 different publishers. And I also started to travel. I never traveled so much in my entire life. Two weeks in California, Nashville, Minnesota, South Dakota. I mean, I've been to most of the 50 states because of Ingram, which I'm also thankful for. And also that company, your coworkers become your family because you travel that much. They knew me better than my own family half the time because that's how much travel that we did. So I stayed there for about five and a half years and I was looking for another challenge. I was looking for something different and, you know, went through the whole interview process and then luckily enough, got the position at McMillan, which was a hybrid of everything that I've done. So which was great because I had experience in everything. And then they added subscription boxes, which at the time, you know, was a little bit big thing, not really a big thing. But I worked on that. And, you know, after two and a half years, my time at McMillan came to an end. And I was like, you know, let's try something different. And Little B, which I've known since my Simon & Schuster days, had amazing pillars, has amazing goals, and that's something I wanted to be a part of. And luckily enough, I interviewed and got the job, and here I am now as a national account manager. That's such a great career. Thank you for sharing that. And I do, I think it's, I mean, it's definitely talked about quite often in the industry. It's definitely a thing, but it's always surprising to me how much people jump around just because I think because I was raised by a family that had jobs that they had their whole lives. So the normalcy of jumping around that is endemic to publishing is always so fascinating to me because it's just so bizarre. But yeah, I think 
it sounds like you've made some really great strategic jumps in your career that have gotten you to where you are today. So that's really great to hear. Thank you for sharing that. No, thank you. And it's true. I mean, I know with publishing and jobs in general, like when you feel comfortable, no one wants to jump around. But I always tell people, if they're truly your friends, as well as their coworkers, when you leave, they'll still be there. And that would make it that much easier to make that decision. And they'll support you regardless of wherever you go. That's great advice. Thank you. Okay, next question. What are some favorite projects and titles that you've worked on so far in your career? One of my favorites was actually my first project with Costco. So we did a Sandra Boyton board book and cow box set. So this is the first time where I literally created product from scratch, priced out the cardboard, the cellophane, and Costco took about 35,000 units. That was the first time I was able to see a project from start to finish. And I actually took my mom to Costco so we can see it because I was super excited. I was like, look what I did. So that was one of my personal favorites. And then also working with premium accounts, just the sheer volume of the people who I'm talking to. I got an email from Emmanuel Ocho and I was just like, how, how did you get my email address? Like, how do you know who I am? Or talking to like a CEO or higher up from Sony or Netflix. It's just the people you interact. I just, they're all my favorites. And then when it comes to subscription boxes, my favorite project was with Alcrate. We did a custom edition embossing cover. It was one of the first times where I truly created a product with a subscription box and I actually still have the book to this day. But yeah, it's just seeing the finished product. So I can't narrow it down to one, but it's just when you see it, you're like, I put all my blood, sweat and tears and pricing into this. And to see it, it just makes it that much better. Yeah, I think that's kind of a universal feeling for people working in publishing. Getting that final book at your desk or in your home or wherever you're getting it, being able to finally hold it and see the months and months of laboring that you've done to get this to be a real thing is just the most rewarding thing. It really is. Even though no one in my family until this day has no idea what I do, but I'm like, oh, that's one of our books. You see that? And they're like, what? What's the big deal? I'm like, you don't understand how hard it is to get books into stores nowadays. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, next question. And this one's kind of, I want to preface this because you work in a specialized area of sales. So your experience in sales is probably going to be different than like the general experience of working in sales. So the question is, how would you describe the work that your department does? So I'm hoping you can answer that as a general, what does sales do? And then also specifically, what is the difference between regular sales and special sales? Sure. Um, I can start off with the difference. So with specialty sales, it's more so you're working with people who normally don't take books or don't, I don't want to say understand the concept of books, but don't see the use of books in their stores until you pitch it to them. So that's special sales. So it's a little bit harder than national accounts like a Barnes & Noble or a Target because they have specified book buyers. So they know the book, they know the author, they know what they want. Rather than with specialty, they have no clue what they want. A lot of accounts pick books literally based off of the color. No context, no nothing. There's like, oh, it's blue, we want it. So that's where the difference is. And it's a little bit more like knocking on a lot more doors than it is national accounts. Not to take away from national accounts, but it's a lot of work to get just a five copy order a lot of times. And then with sales in general, you have to be savvy. You have to, you know, have the ability to converse, but also still relay business. So when you have meetings, you can't be very stoic. You can't be monotone. You have to be a little bit loose, comfortable, easy conversation to make it easier for you to pitch the book. 
And I think that's really important in sales because some people, you know, read off a script and with buyers, they want to see that passion. They want to see that engagement. Okay, like you're pitching me this book, but why? What makes it so important that you feel like we should take it? And I think for sales, you got to have the passion. If you don't like the book, if you don't have to sell it, don't. Because if you can't be at your way through it, it's going to read very clear. Like, okay, they're just doing this because they have to, not because it will be a good fit. But yeah, it's just, you just really need the personality and the passion and also the thick skin. Because a lot of times you'll get, oh, we'll love to take a thousand copies, 500 copies. And then when you get the order in, it's like, oh, it's a hundred copies. Like, oh, okay. And then for national accounts, you know, they take 5,000, 10,000 copies, but they're returnable. So when you see half of that stock return, you're like, oh, that didn't do so well. So you have to really learn your customer, but also take the hits as it comes and also familiarize yourself with the market and know what's popular, what's not popular, what's trending up and down. So it's a lot of different aspects, but it definitely keeps you on your toes. Yeah, it sounds like it definitely does. Also, I want to ask, and I might cut this if you don't know the answer, because this is a question that I've been dying to ask. And I've asked a couple of people and no one really knows the answer. So if you don't know the answer, no <laughs> worries. But why do we as an industry allow returns? That is so confusing to me. It's because, okay, not to get too much into the weeds, it's based off a discount. So you have a lot of big retailers who want the books, but being a little bit cheap about it. So they're saying, okay, we'll give you 70% off the retail price, but if it doesn't sell, can we return it? But because it's going into that store and we're offering that 70% discount, they're like, okay, we'll do whatever you want. But I'm with you. Ret what's the point of returns? Like, if you don't want the book, if you're not sure about the book, take a smaller quantity of the book. Or, you know, keep the book and then go on sale. Like, there's, I am with you because the number of returns, especially when COVID happened, was tremendous. Everything was coming back in droves and no one knew what to do. It's like, well, it's COVID. Nothing is open. What do you expect for them to do? So, yeah, it's a, it's a numbers game, but I'm with you. There should be no returns at all. You buy it, you keep it. Yeah, I've always just found it so bizarre. Like no other, I mean, obviously we're kind of in a weird place because we are media and then also we're creating a product. So, you know, it's not like we're one-to-one -one comparable to, I don't know, a shoe company or something, but nobody is, I mean, I don't know, maybe they are in shoe sales, but it seems like with those kinds of products, the store gets the quantity that they get. And then if they don't sell it, they don't sell it. That's their issue. And it just is so weird to me that until the actual book sells, those books are kind of ours on any bookshelf. They're kind of owned by the publisher until they're sold. And that just the whole concept is so bizarre to me. Yeah. And then when they come back, they sit in our warehouse for God knows how long to the point where it's like, OK, do we re-release this and hopefully we can sell this? Or a lot of times, no offense to the environment, we pulp it. We destroy thousands upon thousands of books. And you're like, that's a lot of trees we killed for books that came back. Yeah, it's such a flaw. It's a weird system. I don't, <laughs> I want to do an episode just on these kinds of things. Like why does publishing work this way as a whole topic? Because there's so many things like this where I'm like, this industry is so confusing. But anyway, enough of that tangent. Thank you for that answer. That helps a lot. Next question. What are your favorite and least favorite parts of your job? Uh, my favorite part of my job is actually who I work with. With sales, you're very fortunate enough to work with literally everyone in the publishing industry from finance, marketing, design, editorial, the warehouse, everyone, because we need all of them in order to sell the book. We need, you know, the finance team, if we're creating a custom product to say, hey, can this pricing work? We need legal to look over contracts for vendors to make sure, you know, we're not crossing any lines or breaking any rules or anything. 
We need editorial, you know, for custom product if a word is used or if they want to remove pages. So we're one of the few departments where we have the most experience with everyone rather than, you know, with editorial. They know editorial. They may veer into marketing a little bit, but it's straight editorial. Marketing, publicity, and marketing. Design, you guys talk to editorial and marketing, but finance, legal, it's like not really the top of your list. The warehouse, unless the books are late, not really at the top of your list. But we talk to literally everyone, which gives me another perspective as well. Like, you know, with customer service, I think customer service in the industry, you want to just choke them sometimes. But working with them, you realize, okay, they're dealing with the same craziness that we're dealing with, but they're getting it from customers. And then I'm getting it from the customers as well, but then I'm passing it along to them. So it's a little bit of a sympathy as well. It's like, all right, let me give them a little bit benefit of the doubt. But that's one of my favorite parts of the job is not siloed. You literally know every facet of the company. My least favorite part is always the rejection. You know, when a sale doesn't turn out the way you want to, or when you're creating a custom product and you get the product and you're like, okay, this is not what I asked for. This is not what I asked for. Send it back, start over. Or if an account comes back and say, you know what, can we go like a penny or two below what we agree to, which may not seem like a big thing, but we literally have to start from scratch from there. We have to go back to get an approvals. We have to go back and run a P&L, talk to finance, talk to legal. It literally puts us 10 steps back. So that's like my least favorite part, but it is part of the business. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. Next question. And you kind of already touched on this when you were talking about sales as a department, but what kind of traits and or skills do you feel are necessary for a person looking to work in a job in sales? First off, gotta like books. If you don't like books, don't do it. I tell people all the time, publishing, especially sales, is a passion career for real. As you know, we are not paid enough for what everything that we do. And with sales, you need that passion because if not, it's not going to work. And you need the personality. I'm actually very shy. I'm very much an introvert. You can ask a lot of my friends. I really don't like people that much. But I sell books because I love books. I've been a reader since I was like eight years old. So it makes it easier for me to talk about books because I have such a passion for it. And I think passion, drive, and the attitude is the three most things that you need to work in sales. And which makes it harder because a lot of people who are trying to break into publishing, which I truly do understand, they feel like sales is their foot in the door before they move over to editorial or marketing, design, finance, or whatever within the industry. But the thing is, they don't realize how hard it is until they get to it. And they're like, oh, you have to do all this. Yes, you have to create your own sell sheets. You have to cold call. You have to cold email. You have to present. You have to have like a number of personality traits. It's not just, oh, okay, here's Nora Roberts. Let's just, we don't have to do anything with that. That's, she's already, how many copies you want to take? Like, no, it's not, it's not that easy. You have to be persistent, good attitude, and you really gotta love the books. Yeah, I do think, and this is something I've talked about on this podcast, and I'll probably continue talking about until the end of this podcast, but I think so many people just because they know so little about the industry, just assume they want to work in editorial and they don't know anything about any other department. And so they get into other departments thinking, oh, this will be my stepping stone. And then either they realize, oh, this department like sales is really difficult. Maybe this isn't for me. Or they're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know this was an option. But what a wonderful place to be. And I think I think that's why it's so important that we educate people looking to get into publishing what their options are, because editorial is great if you want to do editorial. But I have no interest in being an editorial. I never have. 
and there are so many people like me. So I think it's just so important that people get a better understanding of the whole scope of the industry so that they can better pinpoint where they want to be in the industry once they get in. I totally agree. And I think what doesn't help is movies and TV because you see all of these movies where it's all about editorial. It's like, oh, we got this bestseller, you know, read the manuscripts. But people really don't realize EAs don't make that much. You're literally reading paper manuscripts, making notes, taking it back to the editor. Nine times out of 10, they're telling you, nope, do it over again. And you're working on how many books? And how many manuscripts and they don't realize how hard the work it is. And that goes for every facet of publishing, you know, even with design. If an author doesn't like a cover, start from scratch. If a major retailer doesn't like the cover, doesn't like the color, start from scratch. I mean, it's a lot that people don't know. And I think it's basically off of what they see on TV and the movies. It's romanticizing. Like Sex in the City, like, oh, she was a journalist and just this wonderful book came out and it's a New York Times bestseller. But do you have any idea what went into that book? Not at all. But she just knows she became famous and got to go to Paris for it, which does not happen in real life. Yeah. Speaking of TV shows, have you ever seen the show Younger? Yes. I love that show. <laughs> It's a great show, but the publishing is sometimes accurate, but 90% of the time, the timelines, especially, they're publishing books in two months. And I'm like, that book is garbage if you published it that quickly. That is a horrible book. There's no way that's a good quality product. It's just wild to me. <laughs> exactly. And people, and that's the funny thing is when I tell people what I do, they're like, oh, so, you know, it takes six months for Barnes. I said, no. I said, we're a season ahead. And it's like, what do you mean? We're already talking about books for 2023. 2022 is done. It's already done with. It's already done, been sold. And it takes about a year and a half on a good schedule to get things done. And I was like, don't even get me started on supply chain issues because that's another thing people didn't consider. You know, that was an issue of publishing. Like, what do you mean? All the books are not printed in the United States. It's cheaper to print overseas, which means supply chain issues. Books are just sitting on boats, just chilling until they can make it to the ports. So it's just like... One day, I mean, Younger was close, but I'm waiting for that show where it truly shows the struggle of trying to get books. I mean, especially for an author to sign, like I could tell you stories of us overnighting books for an author to sign and they get lost. I had an author ship the books himself. I had another author willing to drive and pick up the books just because they didn't trust the postal service. Yeah, I really do believe, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm in the industry, so I'm biased and I'm like, it's so dramatic. But I really do think there's enough drama within this industry to make a really good office style show. I really think that it would be good. And again, there's so many of those scenarios. I mean, just with supply chain, like there was that boat that sank and like a bunch of different books are just at the bottom of the ocean now. That's a thing that actually happened. And then even within the office, one of my core, I won't say any names or the title of the book, but so they used, this was back in the day when they were routing things on paper manuscripts because now we do pretty much all digital stuff, but they were using these friction pens and they like, they write, but if you like use friction on them, they erase the ink, which is great for copy editing and proofreading because if you make a mistake, you just erase it, blah, blah, blah. However, also that ink disappears if it's too hot. And so I don't know exactly what happened, but they had a manuscript near something hot and all of their writing disappeared from the manuscript after a proofread or something. So they were freaking out. It was hours and hours of work that just disappeared in an instant. So they had to put the manuscript in a freezer because cold reactivates the ink. So they just put a manuscript in the office freezer 
and left it there overnight because they were like, well, hopefully this will bring it back all the work. And then the next morning, the manuscript was gone because the facilities team cleaned out the fridge. So they didn't know where the manuscript was. So they had to run around the office all day trying to figure out where it was. And it was just, I didn't experience this. This happened before I even started at the company. But these are the kind of antics that I think would make great television. People don't realize how funny it is. Like when the pandemic first started, my mom was a teacher. So she came over. So she's not computer savvy at all. So I had to teach her the setup and she would see me on meetings and hear me on phone calls. And she's like, are people really yelling at you? Because I'm like, yeah, they want to know where their five copy book is or they're mad they have to pay for the books. Or this one, I had this one senior citizen, I don't know how she got my number, called me because the book was missing five pages. Right damn smack in the middle. It jumped from like 78 to like 80s. And she was like, where's the rest of the pages? I'm like, I don't know, ma'am. I didn't print the book. Well, can you send me a free one? Because this is go on a complete tangent and you know between the senior citizens and then people in jail who are asking for free books and it, it's just it would be a perfect office style type situation like i could picture like jim being an editor it's like a picture jan being you know the ceo like what, like what's going on people why can't we just make this book why is it so hard yeah, and I think Michael would be, like, that really inept senior, super high-up editor that, like, everyone's, like, we just gotta, you know, handle him with kids' gloves. We let him do his thing in the corner, but we're kind of ignoring him. Like, that's... I could... I see it so clearly. It would be such a great show. I agree. Someone needs to get on that ASAP. If not, you can. I'm already doing too much, but thank you. <laughs> I don't... I don't see TV writing in my future. Moving on, now that we've pitched a great show. <laughs> um... <laughs> Can you walk us through the standard work that you do in your role for an individual book from start to finish? And I do want to preface this also, if possible, could you give us a kind of overview, if you can, of a more standard sales and then also specifically what you do? I do want to dive into the special sales because I do think it's really fascinating to see all of the intricacies that go into those kinds of sales projects. But also, I do want to try to give a more general idea of what one would experience working in like an actual regular sales department as well. So if you could give both of those answers, that would be really great. No, of course. I mean, the general aspect of sales, it's kind of starts, you would think it starts with the manuscript, but a lot of times it doesn't. A lot of salespeople don't see the manuscript. We don't know what the book is about. And so we receive the tip sheet and the tip sheet is kind of our like, okay, this is what we have to pitch. And then from there, that's when we start reaching out to accounts and say, hey, we have this book coming out 2024. This is the synopsis. We don't have a cover. We don't have anything, but this is what it is. And it's something to put on their radar. And as we get closer to publication, you always follow up. Okay, this is the marketing for like this title. This is what we have coming down the pipeline. And then once the cover comes, which is usually the make or break moment, the cover comes, they're like, oh, great. This is great. Do you have a complete manuscript? And then you would think it would be reverse the manuscript, then the cover. But no, it's actually the cover, then the manuscript. And then from there, for the major retailers, they'll decide right on the spot. Like, okay, if it's an established author, we don't need to read it. Give us 10,000 copies. If it's a first-time author, they'll say, can you give us like a couple of sample pages just so they can get the gist of the book? And then once... You know, we have sales conference. That's our go ahead to just start pitching hard as possible. Like this is everything that we have. Do you need galleys, arcs, like whatever you need? And that's where it starts from. So it's a little bit easier from just a general sales point. From a special sales sales point, we actually can't sell the book until it's finished. Because like I said, they don't really know anything about books. So we can pitch them the concept and say, oh, James Patterson is coming out with, you know, the new Michael 
Bennett title or whatever. And they could say, who the hell is that? And you're like, okay, that's not going to work. But once we have the finished book, we could say, here, read this. Let us know if you like it. And then from there, they're able to decide if they're going to take the title. That's why I, I tend to refer to special sales as the redheaded stepchild, because we're always an afterthought after the book is finished. Rather than the rest of the sales department, they sell the book before the book is even finished. And so that's, you know, the back and forth and how it goes. But it's quite interesting. You know, briefly when I was at Hachette, I did B&N sales. I was an assistant. So I had to fill out those title cards. God bless those people who have to do those title cards. And then literally all they got was the cover. And they said, okay, we'll take 10000 We'll take 5000 Without reading the synopsis, without reading anything else about the book, just straight the cover. And then with special sales, it's like, no, we need to read the whole book. We don't know what this is about. But the thing is, if it doesn't do well in general sales, like Barnes & Noble or Target, then they look to us in special sales like, hey, what can you, well, it didn't sell that well. So what can you guys do with it? And then this is where we come in and say, well, we can't sell this because you made the cover very, you know, generic to a sense for the masses rather than our market is super specific. Like, um... Crate and Barrel only picked books with animals for a while. They weren't taking any books with, with humans on the cover. Cracker Barrel, it had to be a certain price point, a certain format. So if a book didn't sell well in sales, they will try to pitch it to us. And we're like, sorry, we can't do anything with it because it's we can't change anything about it. So that's when it becomes, well, why didn't you say something sooner? It's like, well, we did, but, you know, we're the redhead step shop. So <laughs> we don't get the love that most sales reps do but also when we do get the win it's like ha I told you so and so let's say you had a hypothetical title that you were trying to sell as a special sale to a client what does that work look like from start to finish if everything goes right and you actually make the sale and all of it goes as planned what is the work that goes into that sale so once the book is completed i do a whole pitch letter mail it out to the account follow up a couple of days later if they say hey great we want to take it the good thing about special sales is they'll take a book till it dies. So they will continue to reorder and reorder until we go out of print. And we're also non-returnable. So that's what makes it special. So once we get past all those hurdles and they actually want the book, the rest of it's easy. We just take the orders, process it, and that's pretty much it. As long as we have stock, they will continue taking it. If we make any changes to it, they will still take it. The only time they will have a little bit of hesitation if it's a price change, but only if it's a significant price change. If it went from like $15.95 to $15.99, they're not really going to bat an eyelash. But if it jumps from $15.95 to like $18.99, then they have to, you know, readjust their budget. Because with special sales, they don't have as much money as the bigger retailers do. So they have to be very price conscious when they take the book. But that's one thing I like. Once it's in, it's in for life. It doesn't go anywhere. That's great. And I'm mostly asking this because I have worked with you in the past and we were doing a lot of special editions type stuff. So would you say that most special sales are just the regular book itself being sold to different accounts and then the special editions are the more niche area of special yes. sales? That's exactly it. Like when we work together subscription boxes, you know, as that whole area blew up we just couldn't sell the regular book anymore because you had five other different boxes literally selling the same thing so then it became who can out top another and that's where the customizations just went off the walls but normally we would sell the book straight from stock but yeah unless they came in with a huge order let's say like ten thousand or twenty thousand where they could do their own print run and that would be if like hey we like the book but 
it's too many pages or you have a certain word that we can't use. Like I remember you're a badass. That was a really popular book. I'm an accountant didn't take it because it had ass in it. Even though the word itself was badass, they still didn't take it. We had to reprint 10,000 copies for them and bleep out the ass part. So it was like a bubble over the ass, but you knew what it was saying. But they came in with such a high quantity. It was like, okay, we could do this for you. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think because, because when I was working on special sales, all I was working on were the special editions. So in my mind, special sales is special editions because I didn't realize that you're also just selling the books themselves to special accounts. I never made that connection. So it's interesting to me that the things that I was actually working on are kind of the smaller part of your full job, the sales that you're making. So that's really interesting to hear. Don't worry, you're not the only one. And I tell everyone, I was like, consider special sales a brick and mortar, like an extra purchase. If you go to H&M and they have a book on their cash wrap, that's a special sale because H&M doesn't sell books. Victoria's Secret, same thing. Any store that normally does not sell a book is considered a special sale. That's a really good description. Thank you. I've always been kind of hazy with that. So that's a really good definition. Thank you. Next question. What is one thing that you wish you knew about publishing or your role working in sales, et cetera, before you started working in the industry? I wish I knew it was a possibility. I never knew it was a thing. I mean, now universities have publishing courses over the summer, during the school year. But back in my day, when I was in college, I never knew it was a thing. They never publicized it, which I think kind of makes it what it is today and how we're trying to change it. Because now you have a whole bunch of people who are interested, but we didn't know it existed. So it's kind of like a gatekeeping role. And with sales, didn't even know sales existed. Before this, I really thought a book was printed and it was just magically appear at Barnes & Noble. I had no idea what that whole process was. So I wish we knew. I wish there was a more formal course, not just the publishing course, which not to say there's anything wrong with that. I know a lot of people who do that, but they use it more for the connections and just to learn the basic terms, like an ISBN, a format. But no, it should be a class on like, okay, no, this is editorial. This is sales. This is what you need to do to achieve this, this, and this, which no one tells you until you get into the business. Like no one says, oh, in order to get promoted, you have to leave. Like you have people in the same company for 20 plus years in the same position, but they're like, oh, well, we've been here for so long. And then here we come like, oh, we've been here for five or six years. Okay, time to move on. Time to move to the next chapter and see what else we can do. So it's just not no at all. And also not seeing enough of people like me, you know, at the one company I worked at, I was only African-American sales rep. So that was a very eye-opening experience to say the least. And even, you know, in meetings, it's not a lot of colors of the rainbow, shall we say, in the room. And that's something that I wish I knew to, to prepare myself because we're afraid to speak up because, okay, I'm the only one in the room, but if I speak up, are they going to take me seriously? Or are they just be like, you don't know, you're new, or you don't know so-and-so. So it's like that type of thing. I just wish I knew it was a thing. Those are both answers that I've heard from several people that I've talked to so far. And it's like, I don't know. On the one hand, I think it makes sense that we're all saying kind of the same things about what we wish we knew. But also, if we're all saying it, then <laughs> this is an issue that the industry needs to figure out. Why We should not all be having the same issues with this industry. Like, ugh. anyway, I digress. <laughs> okay, next question. And this directly relates to this. If you had the power, like if some publishing overlord came to you one day and said, hey, Bianca, you have all the power in the industry and in the world to change publishing however you like, what changes would you make? 
first, I would start with editorial because you have some people who have been there longer than both of us have been alive. So I would give them a time limit. Like you've been at this company or this imprint for 10, 15 years. It's time to move on. We need a new thought process. We need someone with new eyes. We need someone with a new perspective. No offense to you. Continue your career. But here, it's time to move on. Also, more internships. I mean, unless you go to an Ivy League school or you are stalking chat rooms, no one knows about internships, like at all. And when I was in school, internships were unpaid, but the mandatory was you had to live in New York. I was like, the audacity, you're not going to pay me. But then you want me to live in New York. If New York rent is how high? <laughs> it's like, what is it? You know, make internships available to everyone. And then to start them out younger. Like if you see an eight or 10 year old with a passion of books, you know, like, hey, why don't you come to a publishing house for a day? Learn the process. Let that grow. And maybe one day, you know, there'll be an editor. They can be marketing design or whatever. But, you know, just give them that opportunity. But I think overall, people who've been there for 15 plus years, transition on. Transition on to another publishing company, start a literary agency. I really don't care what you do. But you've been there for so long, it makes it so hard for the rest of us to get where we need to be. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue, especially like, I'm going to make this about me because I can, but a big issue with man-ed at least, and I think this is true for most parts of the industry, but especially in man-ed because the jobs are so few and far between because we are a pretty niche section of the industry. It's really hard to get promotions in a role in a company because there just aren't spaces above you to move up to. And then also it's hard to find jobs to move into at other companies because there just aren't that many postings. And so it's just how do you, you know, and I think this is true for so many departments where people just, if they like their role, they'll stay in it for a super long time, which is great, I guess. I'm glad you're happy, but there's no room for growth for other people. And so we get stuck and new talent can't develop and grow and improve and change the industry if the industry stays stagnant the way it has for so exactly. long. Exactly. All of that. It's just, you know, I've worked with people, especially Hachette. She is still there, by the way, 25 years in the same position. And it's like, you're preventing the next person from growing. Everyone who has been in the same position for 15 plus years, you're making it hard for us. It's bad enough, you know, we're not getting paid the way that we should for all the work that we do. But then in order to be promoted, we have to leave. And no one likes to leave a company, especially if you love the people and you love the company in general. But then, you know, you have to do what's best for you. It was really hard for me to leave Ingram. Like I, the people, I love the people, the places. It was great, but I kept getting denied for a promotion. And their reason was, well, there's no growth. Where are you going to go? Your boss is at the top. Then there's you. So we can't create a role for you. So you could just keep doing this. And it's like, especially for us, you know, we want to grow. We want to have those higher titles and gain that experience rather than people who have been in the game for so long. They're completely content. And it's like, to your point, I'm glad you're content, but you're also preventing me from growth. So it's like, get out. Let's do something else. Get out. But that's what I tell people all the time. It's just like publishing is great. But if you want a promotion, you have to be prepared to leave at some point in time. Yeah. And I hate that that's the case because. Especially when you find a really good place to work. You're like, I never want to leave, but then you're never going to grow. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what do you do? Uh, even my friends, they're like, well, didn't you just? I was like, yeah, I just left another job because there was no room for growth. And I need growth. Also need more money because cost of living is astronomical. So I have to do what's best for me. Yeah, I think that's 
And speaking of good advice, moving to the next question, because I do think do what's best for you is a really great piece of advice just in general in life, but also working in publishing. But more specifically, what is the best advice that you've received thus far in your career? I received it on Hachette. So long story short, back when Blockbuster video was a thing, so long ago this was, they were failing because DVDs were a thing. So they decided to sell books. And at the time, I was super excited. They picked one of our books. I was like, yes. They picked like 30,000. We shipped them. They all came back. I mean, every last one came back. I had to walk into my boss's office with my tail between my legs. Like, so you know that huge deal that I just closed? Yeah, they just all came back. And I'm sitting there crying. And she closed the door. And she's like, look, you're in publishing. You're in corporate America. And she was also African-American as well. So she was like, look, I'm giving you today to mope, to cry, to get it out your system. But tomorrow you walk up in this office with your head held high, knowing that you did your job to the best of your ability. And if people don't speak to you, if they're mad at you, they will get over it because you don't know if they would have done the same thing if they were given that same opportunity. You don't let anyone or anything bring you down to the point where you can't get to work the next day. And that's something I have carried through, you know, mistakes, mishaps throughout my entire career. Like I take a day. Let it all out. Tomorrow's a new day. You figure out a solution. You figure out how to move on from it. And then you it's just added to the list. But it's also a growth process. And it's something, you know what? I learned in my back pocket. Blockbuster went out of business, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. But it was one of those things where I was just like, when you're fired, I've just get fired like they, they returned all the books and she's like no you're not gonna get fired granted the vp of the department actually didn't speak to me for five months like we will walk down the hallway she would completely ignore me my direct boss told me she's like she's gonna ignore you she's gonna try to break you down or you just keep your head up high and it's gonna come a point where she's gonna be ready to talk to you again and that point came five months later wow on the one hand i'm like happy that you had the strength but also that VP should not have a job if that's how they react. Like, I'm sorry, but that's so, that's not professional in any way. Like, yeah, you can be annoyed that something didn't go well at your job, but to shun someone for five months because they didn't do the best job that you think they could have done, like that, see, I love publishing, but those kinds of stories make me insane because that is just some horrible behavior. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to take this there, but. Oh, no. It was just one of the, I literally went home crying. I was just like, I'm done. Like, this is it. And then every day I kept coming in and then she'll look at me and I'm like, good morning. I'll still say, and she just looked at me like, and just walk away. I'm like, okay. It's going to be that day that she speaks to me. And five months later, when I said good morning, she was like, good morning, Bianca. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. So either we sold the copies that came back or she just got over it. And then when I left, she did my exit interview, funny enough. And she told me, she was like, I did that as a learning experience because she's like, you're going to come across bosses, management, who is going to totally disrespect you, which I experienced in fashion. So there was no need for a teaching lesson there. But she's like, you need to have a thick skin and just know it's business and nothing personal. And so I kind of took it to heart, but I was still upset. I was like, but you didn't speak to me for five months. And she was like, I had to teach you a lesson. I wasn't going to let you forget it. And I was just like, okay, I'm still leaving, but okay. See hypothetically, I think that's a good lesson, like having a thick skin, you know, rolling with the punches, all of that. But for her to say you're, one day you're going to run into a boss that's disrespectful, you're the boss. What do you mean? You already are the boss. I already ran into you. Like, I don't want to experience another person like you. And funny enough, 
at my next position at Simon & Schuster, I ran into someone equally worse than her. So I can't say any names, but I was an assistant manager. My boss was a manager. So each morning he would come into her office where I'd be sitting. I'm like, oh, good morning. He'll look at me, not acknowledge me at all. And like, oh, good morning, Sam. And would leave. I would see him in the hallway, say good morning, won't speak to me. Good afternoon. Would not acknowledge my presence. The day I gave my notice, the man got my phone number, my personal phone number, which I still don't know how he got to this day, to beg me to stay. And I said, no offense. You ignored me for two and a half years. You did not acknowledge me for two and a half years. So now that I'm officially leaving, now all of a sudden you care about me and you have my personal number. And he was like, well, I was like, sorry, I'm not staying. For someone who ignored me that long, I'm not staying. Good luck, Godspeed. Yeah, that's one of those moments that I hope to have one day where you just really stick it to them in the moment. Yeah, I just, I'm going to say it again. I love publishing, but sometimes I'm like, just burn it all to the ground. The fact that, People even feel like they can treat a human being like that is wild to me. Just burn the whole thing to the ground. It's the audacity for me. It's like, (laughs) we're human. Like, we're not. And I used to tell people, I tell my assistants all the time, like, whenever they get really upset, I was like, remember, we're not curing cancer. We are not saving the world. We are publishing books. So don't let anyone treat you this way. Don't let a customer treat you this way. A person who under you over no one deserves to be degraded and i think that's something in publishing that everyone knows everyone has experienced but we're like oh yeah it happens or everyone knows okay steer clear of that person don't talk back to that person just sit there and take it and then walk away or you can't tell them that because then they'll take offense it's like we shouldn't have to do all this especially for the pay we're getting like if we're gonna get demoralized at least let us make some big books about it we feel like solve our problems and do shopping to make us feel better but like it's it, it sometimes and i keep telling myself i'm like i love publishing I, I i i do love publishing i just have to keep reminding myself that all the time when i'm going to strangle someone yeah sometimes i think i'm like gaslighting myself because i'm like do i love publishing but i think i do i don't know it's tough because I, like i've only been in this career for like two and a half years so like you know I've had no experiences compared to people who have been in this industry for like a decade or anything. But still, I'm like, even in two and a half years, do I love publishing? (laughs) It makes you question everything all the time. Like, I remember during the holidays when I was at McMillan, this author called me on Christmas. First off, why did I pick up the phone? I don't know. She called me on Christmas asking about books to be delivered for an event taking place in January. I said, it's Christmas. What do you want me to do? Well, can't you call the warehouse? Like, where's my... I was like, it's Christmas. Everything is closed. People are celebrating with their families. And you're calling me. And the fact that I picked up shows how burnt out I am right now because I picked up the phone on Christmas. And she yelled at me. I mean, went on a rant for 15 minutes. And when I got off the phone, I was like, did I pick the right career? Did I get yelled at on Christmas about books that was not needed until the middle of January? I was like, did I make the right decision? Yeah, I don't think I have the right personality for like a customer service role. Because like I do have, in Manette, I do have to be diplomatic and everything. But I'm working with people that I work with at work. So like if they're horrible to me, then I like work with them. So, you know, it's, it's just a different vibe than some rando that I'm never going to see again. So if someone came at me like that, I would just feel like this is not how you talk to a human. I wouldn't have allowed the rant. I would have just hung up, but I probably would have also gotten fired. So like, I think it's good that I'm not in that role. (laughs) Oh, I got in trouble. So I got stories for days. 
but it was this other shirt right quick. It was the friend of an author and they wanted a book and she was mean. Like in the email, she was degrading, very vulgar, saying I was a useless human, just went on and on and on. And I said, okay, you picked the wrong guy. And I just went on a rant as like, first off, don't ever in your life talk to me like that. I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. Don't ever talk. And paragraphs. And I sent it off. And she didn't like my response. So she sent it to the editor. And the editor called my boss. And my boss called me. And my boss said, oh, you wrote this email. And I said, yes, and? She's like, well, it was quite aggressive. And I said, well, did you did you see what she wrote? She's like, yeah, she was quite aggressive. I said, so yes, I was aggressive. How you treat me is how I'm going to treat you. You're aggressive with me. I'm going to be aggressive with you. And then the editor called me and he yelled at me. And I had to look at the phone. I said, excuse you, who are you talking to? He was like, but I was like, you work in sales. You used to work in sales before you got this position, correct? So you're going to call and yell at me over an email where I was degraded, where I'm pretty sure you've gotten similar emails. I was like, so for future reference, don't you ever in your life talk to me that way again. He's like, but I was like, I will say it to your face when the office opens. And he was like, have a good day. Do I really love publishing? Yeah, I just don't know how you handle these kinds of things all the time. I know that I could not do it. So kudos to you for having the strength to deal with all of this because I don't have that. (laughs) Um, Okay, those are all of my questions. Thank you so much, first of all, for answering them, but then also for going on that little tangent with me. I think these kinds of conversations are so important because... I think publishing is so often glamorized, like we've said in movies and TV, but then also on social media, you see the bestsellers and the the cool editors that acquire all these great books. And like, those are all great things. But I don't think people talk enough about these kinds of things, the really difficult things that you have to go through in order to have this career. And the number of times you have to ask yourself, do I actually like publishing is alarming how often we ask ourselves this. So thank you so much for your candor, for your openness, for sharing with my audience. I so appreciate it. Not a problem. And again, thank you for having me. Of course. And then I do have two quick last questions. Number one, if you enjoy being followed on the internet, where can people follow you? And then also, do you have any projects that you're working on upcoming that you want to shout out or anything that recently came out that you want to talk about? You can find me on LinkedIn. My Instagram is all about my food and my cats, but you can follow me on Instagram, Malia B, because Bianca was taken. And the projects we're working on, so with Little B, we focus on diversity, especially, you know, empowerment, LGBTQIA. So we're working on a follow-up to Uncle Bobby's wedding, which was a bestseller title for us. So that's something I'm super excited about working on. And then just getting, you know, all of our books out to the public where you see people like me on the cover. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, thank you so much again, Bianca. I've had such a great time talking to you. It's so nice seeing you again after you left McMillan. It's so great to see you. And Truly, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Anytime. And hopefully you'll allow me back. Oh, of course. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Slush. Please visit slushpod.com where you'll find episode transcripts, free resources, and forms to submit questions and feedback. You can also follow Slush on Twitter at slushpod. And if you are so inclined, please rate and review the podcast. Slush is hosted and produced by Eric Harden. Slush's logo was designed by Shelby Pack, and its theme music comes from the song Good Luck Charm by Olive Music. Any views expressed on the podcast are personal and do not reflect the opinions or interests of the hosts or guests' employers. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.